with my, where's my turn around her? Hang on. <laughs> oh, there it is. Okay. Is it okay if I put this here? That's fine. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> no? I mean, I can hear you, but. I know. Testing. No. So there's something wrong with this thing, eh? I'm not sure. I'm not going to worry about it. I mean, it's on. Can you? Okay. All right. Is that better? Okay. Well, maybe I have to be really close. All right. This is your captain. Due to circumstances beyond our control, we're going to be having a layover this morning. <laughs> and as we get into our study, you'll understand what I mean. Last week, as we studied chapter 5, we saw how the gospel of justification by faith in Jesus changed the course of human history. And as we looked at chapter 5, how sin had entered the world through the one act of disobedience of Adam, and as a result of that act, sin and death spread to all humankind. But the catastrophe brought into the world by Adam really showed off the supremacy and the sufficiency of the one act of obedience by Jesus Christ. And as Jackie worked through the contrasting list of Adam and Jesus, we saw the difference between Adam and Jesus. As in Adam, all die. You know, when I listen to the Messiah, there's that part where they go, as in Adam, all die. But then the chorus comes in, and it just, but in Christ is life and righteousness, and the Messiah just goes on to say what, what's in Christ. Well, with Jesus, something so marvelous happened while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It was a more magnificent triumph. In chapter 5, verse 17, that tremendous description of two contrasts, death through Adam, this reign of death, which is a real tragedy, but the free gift of righteousness through the man Jesus. The gospel has to include this. We can't ignore it. When Jesus came, it was to pay a price to satisfy the wrath of God. And this is a very important part of the gospel. And Paul will continue to deal with it until the end of chapter 8. The wrath of God handed us over to the reign of sin and death. That power called sin. We had been delivered to it. And we read that in chapter 1. There was and is no way to get out or over the power unless we're justified or redeemed. But against that backdrop, Paul talks about a new era where we could be made righteous, forgiven, and given eternal life through Christ. For these chapters 6 to 8, we'll be reminded of the old era and the new era and how we relate to both eras. In verse 18 of chapter 5, we see this summary. The act of the death of Christ, which leads to the acquittal or justification and eternal life. So how can we believe as we still see the evidence of sin in our lives? How can we believe we're justified and will not meet the wrath of God? This is what chapter 6 to 8 will deal with. And today we'll look at what provoked chapter 6, or at least the first part of it. So as we begin, I'd like to go back to the last two verses of chapter 5 and read through to chapter 6, verse 14. And we'll look at those verses, and then next week, Sarah will continue on to the last part of this chapter. 
So chapter 5, verse 20 to 614. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Let's just pray. Father God, we just thank you for these precious words. Help us to quiet our hearts. Help me to speak clearly. Help us to understand what this grace is, what this justification is, what realm you've brought us from, and what realm you've brought us into. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 1, Paul asks the question, Shall we continue in sin so grace may increase? And looking back at chapter 5, we saw the theme was that of assurance and the certainty of salvation. In fact, the first four chapters of Paul were written about justification by faith and the various arguments that were brought against it. Right at the beginning of chapter 5, he speaks about the peace of God that we have because we are justified. And we have access to this grace in which we stand by faith. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're going to look at that later in chapter 8. But here Paul is continuing on with our union with Christ. We were joined to Adam, but now we're joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 1, Paul asks, Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Now where did this come from? It seems that Paul needs to take some time to clarify what was said about the law and grace in verse 20 of the previous chapter. Now remember when the letter was written, it wasn't in chapter form. That didn't come until the 16th century. So Paul is now going to take some time to address the fact that the argument could go something like this. Well, if we're under the reign of grace and the law can be set aside, we can sin because grace will cover it. Paul wanted to make sure they didn't misunderstand that statement. 
that people would not be so presumptuous and say, well, if you tell me that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, doesn't it follow that the more I sin, the more I will know of the grace of God? What a great doctrine. Salvation. It's the free gift of God. It means it doesn't matter what you do. You're saved forever and ever. Well, people have misused that doctrine in that way many years through the, the early church. But the Apostle Paul pauses in chapter 5 about assurance. And in chapter 8, he'll take up the theme again. But in the meantime, between chapter 5 and chapter 8, we have a little layover. We're going to now look at this issue of antinomianism, which is another name for lawlessness. And he's going to clear it up in chapters 6 and 7, these difficulties that arise over grace abounding. Will that not incite people to loose, loose living and to sin? He was a very wise teacher. He anticipated difficulties, and so he dealt with the questions even before they arose. His question in verse 1 and 2 stems from verse 20 of the previous chapter. What was the point of the law? Why did God give the law to Israel? What was it meant to do? And how do we view the law? We read that phrase in verse 20 of chapter 5. The law came in to increase the trespass. Or in another translation, the law came in so that transgression would increase. The law seems to have made an increase in sin in certain ways. The law, when it was given, defined what was right and wrong. It identified what activities and attitudes were sinful, what God thought of these acti activities and attitudes. And it also made the breaking of the law more wicked because it classified those activities and attitudes as sin. But when Paul refers to the law coming in so that the transgression or sin would increase, he was saying that when sin is confronted with God's law, it appears to increase sin. But really, the sin's already been there. Men standing under sin and death already was a fact. It's the law that exposed it. The law is good. It's not sinful. And we'll go into that more fully in a couple of weeks. But the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to God because it's by reading the law we're, we're convicted of sin. As Jackie taught us last week, Paul is saying that where sin was even more exposed, God's grace really showed up even more generously. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Does this grace encourage sinning? Paul says, may it never be. Paul is saying, what folly. If you really understood what happened to you and what God did in regenerating you, you wouldn't even venture to ask that. If you really had been justified, if you really understood what had happened to you, you wouldn't even venture to ask such a question. Someone who's under the reign of grace cannot think like that. Much, act, much, as, much else act like that. The purpose of grace was to deliver us from the bondage of sin. So in the previous five chapters, Paul has shown God's answer to lost, rebellious people. Right from the beginning, sin has always been abhorrent to God. All the way back in the beginning, God gave Cain a warning. Way back in Genesis 4, God asked Cain why he was so angry. You know the story. They both came with their sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice was accepted, and Cain's wasn't. And when God rejected the offering, because you see, God had, we're not told, but we're, we're sure that God must have said to them how and what type of sacrifice they were to make. But it seems Cain was enraged. We're not told explicitly how they were instructed, 
But obviously Abel knew. And God speaks a wise warning to Cain. Cain will not heed. He didn't, he didn't heed. But it's a warning to us as well. God asks Cain to adjust his understanding of what is good to God's understanding of goodness. If Cain does well, if he did well, God would accept it. In other words, there's no reason for Cain to be angry about God's rejection. All he had to do was obey. And the cure for that rejection is obedience. Well, if Cain insists on setting his own standards for what's acceptable, God says to him, sin is crouching at the door. I go to my daughter's sometimes and she has this cat. And if I'm playing with a toy on the Chesterfield, that cat crouches and just waits and then pounces on that toy. And I think of that. I think the evil one is just waiting for us, isn't he? Sin is crouching at the door. It's a poetic phrase and captures the nature of our rebellion against God. Sin desires to own us. And our refusal to let God set the standard for what's right and wrong in our lives is a fast track to sin. And certainly Cain found out what sin can do. We know where to find God's standard. It's grace, not law. And grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We have no excuse. God's word is our standard. So part of God's rescue plan was that his people would turn from their rebellion against him and serve him. God promised that he'd enable his people to turn away from sin by giving them new hearts so that they will follow his laws. The solution is based on God's grace, and it meant Christ taking on sin on behalf of our sinful deeds. So does that mean that the gospel promotes sin because if Christ has already borne our sins, we can just go ahead because we're exempt from punishment? No. Because all through the Old and New Testament, we read that God hates sin, and he intended to rescue us from it. Ezekiel 26, actually 36 and 26, says, Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. We were never meant to walk in our own strength. The promise of the Holy Spirit was way back there, right in the book of Ezekiel. So now Paul answers his question, which he asked in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Remember now, we've talked about this. It's a diatribe or a dialogue he's having with an imaginary objector. And as he writes the letter, he's imagining the objections and excuses because he's heard them all as he's encountered believers and non-believers alike. And he declares, by no means, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul dismisses the objector who says to the gospel, who says that the gospel promotes sin. He's saying this is folly. God's purpose in the gospel was that we no longer live in sin, that by sending Christ to bear that sin, we no longer have to live under the penalty of sin and God's wrath. So he now exhorts the Roman believer to think about the past and the future. He says, do you not know? And he's going to say that again in verse 16. Do you not know? You ought to know. He's referring here in verses 3 and 4 to the Romans' initial regeneration at conversion when they were born again, when they were baptized to show what had happened to them. This baptism, he refers to, was an outward sign of their new birth or regeneration. As they went under the water, it was a symbol of burial. It was not what regenerated them. The new birth had already happened. 
The teaching of the New Testament is that people who are to be baptized are those who have already given evidence that they're born again or regenerate. So it's not the act of baptism that makes them believers. It's because they're believers that they are baptized. It's a believer's confession of what happened to them. And if you want to look carefully into that, uh, read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, of Cornelius. There are countless stories of, of what happened to these people. They were believers first, and then they were baptized. As the Ethiopian eunuch met with Philip, I liked that idea. He, he heard the words and right away believed, and then looked and said, here's much water. I love that because much water means something's going to happen. If it was a little trickle, it wouldn't have been baptism. Now, don't tell this to James. <laughs> but I have a recipe for bananas. And they're chocolate covered, and they go in the freezer, and they're lovely. But in that recipe, it says to immerse the banana in chocolate and then put it in the freezer. The word for immerse is baptizo. And so if I was Greek and they had, you know, refrigerators back then, bear with me, we're stretching this. But <laughs> if I said I'm going to make this banana dessert, I would say I'm going to baptizo the bananas in chocolate. <laughs> so that's, that's my argument for total immersion. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Paul was saying that when you were baptized, you were testifying to what had already happened to you that while you were under the wrath of God, deserving of hell, God set his love upon you and sent Christ to die for you, and that the Holy Spirit convicted you of that truth of who you were, a sinner <coughs> under wrath. And when you believed that truth about who Christ was, you were born again, that you were justified by your faith, you were removed from the reign and rule of sin. Paul put it to the Colossians this way in Colossians 1 and 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. When Nancy read that, I chuckled, because I thought, it's interesting how we cross-reference each other and how sometimes we use the same things. And so, when you identified with Christ, that old life, that old way of thinking, you were united with Christ. Your old pre-converted state was gone, and as your representative, he died. You were united... You were united into him. You were no longer under the penalty of sin. You were justified. The term to be baptized into Christ meant to enter into a relationship with him. To quote John Stott, Union with Christ by faith, which is invisibly affected by the Holy Spirit, is visibly signified. I'll repeat that. Visibly signified and sealed by baptism. The essential point Paul is making is that being a Christian involves personal, vital identification with Jesus Christ, and that this union with him is dramatically set forth in our baptism. We're showing symbolically we have been brought into the body of Christ or the family of God. What does this mean for you and I? Do you think often of your baptism in that way? How does your baptism affect your life today? I remember at 16 when I was baptized, it was at Jarvis Street, big church, big, big, really impressive auditorium. And you went upstairs to a second floor to get your baptismal stuff on. And I remember at that point, peeking through the door down into the auditorium and seeing my mom and stepfather there and thinking, oh Lord, help them to see, help them to see what this means. 
But you know, my mother never did come to the Lord. That's the hard part. In a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about predestination and election. And it's a, a heavy subject. But my mom had every opportunity to hear the gospel, sometimes more than a lot of natives in Africa, if you want to argue it that way. But she never did come. But I know I had that desire. The baptism meant something. I was saying something. And it, it meant a lot. How does your baptism affect you today? Do you realize what was done? Another good explanation, if you want to look it up, is in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. And you can just look that up later. But remember when Paul was met on the road to Damascus in Acts, Jesus told him he was going to preach to people and he was going to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus said to him. So let's look at verse 4, the second part that says, so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 4, your past life is gone. We're dead as far as the guilt and condemnation of sin is. Now, do you see that phrase, through the glory of the Father? That phrase describes the mighty display of God's glorious power. So I want you to turn to your study guide to page 88. And we're going to look at question 2A. The question is, when Christ was crucified, why was death given or, or mastery or dominion over him? Why was death given mastery or dominion over him? And you were told to look up a few of those verses, which were very helpful. So, somebody want to answer it? Why was death given mastery or dominion over Jesus at that point? Come on, be brave. He had to die, right? He had to bear that sin. He had to bear that iniquity. He had to bear that sting of death. He had to satisfy God's requirement for sin. Well, now look at 2b. However, after Christ died and was raised, why did neither sin nor death any longer have mastery over him? And you were told to look at the different verses in Romans 6. Why did sin nor death no longer have mastery over him? Well, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was proof positive that God was satisfied with the work that his son had done on the cross. And God was proclaiming that the work of atonement and redemption and salvation had been accomplished. So Jesus did no longer need to do this. It was once for all, and it was done. Can you or I raise a dead body? Only God could do that, and he did that to show the price of sin had been paid. But Paul here is saying something to these Romans and to you and I. That same power has been given so that we may walk in newness of life. And we start that walk on the day of our conversion, and it'll be completed on the day of resurrection. And just as Christ was raised, so we'll be raised. And then we'll be finally free from sin forever. 
No wonder Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Kind of reminds you, it's like a missionary letter, isn't it? He was telling them all this, and it, it covered a lot of things. But right here, he's just saying it's to everyone. So tell everyone. Now you no longer serve the old master's sin. He continues in verse 4, and he refers to Christ's resurrection. But just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so you might walk in newness of life. Just as we were united with Christ in his death, we're freed from the penalty of sin. And God's intention is that just as Jesus was raised, we are alive in him, and we can walk in newness of life. Not only that daily walk in this new way, but in verse 5 it says, We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And Jackie reminded us last week that because we've been justified, we've got peace with God. But we're also promised that we'll be in the likeness of his resurrection. For the future, we have this hope, the destiny of being restored to the glory of God. That all we have fallen short of, we're going to be perfectly restored, utterly saved. We'll become what we were originally intended to be. And when we see him, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this is our hope and our confident expectation. We don't wish for this, nor is it just a high ideal. The Christian has a hope, the glory of God, and it's grounded in the very faithfulness of God. He that raised up Jesus from the dead will also quicken our mortal bodies. Well, certain things happen when we were converted. Verse 6 says, our body of sin must be done away with. Now, that does not mean our body is a sinful thing. Remember when we learned about the Gnostics as we studied that in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John? We know God created our body as a vehicle to express ourselves. It doesn't mean our sin-dominated body or the body condition. <laughs> it means, I should say, our, our sin-dominated body or the body conditioned and controlled by sin. Because sin does use our bodies, doesn't it, for evil purposes and it perverts a lot of natural instincts. Now, Paul is not referring to the body as a sinful thing, but the body as a sphere in which sin and death still reign in us. And it does, doesn't it? But it no longer is true that I'm in Adam's realm. I still struggle with sin. It does not have the power it used to have. And in chapter 8, we're going to look more into that. This body of sin is often referred to as the flesh, or that part of us in which sin dwells during this earthly life. Douglas Moo has an interesting take on this, and I'm going to quote him. The old self is a relational and corporate concept. It does not refer to a part of us or a nature within us. Rather, it is Paul's way of describing our sinful condition as children of Adam. What is crucified is that relationship. Our tie to Adam is dissolved. He and the sin and death he represents no longer dictate terms to us. Moreover, if the old self is Adam as corporate head of the human race, then the new self is Christ, corporate head of the church. I drew the circles on the board there to show the old realm and the new realm, and you see us caught in the middle. Um, and sometimes when we sin, we think, am I really a believer? How can I be like this? Well, we have been put into the new realm. We're no longer what we were, praise God but we're not what we ought to be. That's coming. So as we struggle, Paul will tell us what we're, we, what's happened to us. Uh, we've, we've died to sin. That's our standing. And in verse 8 to 10, he's going to describe the new life which comes to us from Jesus' resurrection. 
He says here that Jesus' death was sufficient. His resurrection was permanent. He cannot die again. His resurrection was proof. The penalty for sin was fully paid. Now he lives to God, and since his death, Jesus lives and reigns in the new realm of grace. He's back in the glory with God in the position he had before he came to this earth. So I want you to turn to page 91. Some of these questions you really have to think, don't you? Christ has died to sin and lives to God. And I'm going to read right now, and I don't sometimes don't like people reading from books, but this is so good. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a whole book on chapter 6. One book on chapter 6. <coughs> Romans, the new man. All right. And I'm going to read page 109. But now, says the apostle, in the second half of this 10th verse, he's no longer in that condition, talking about the condition he was in when he was here on earth. In that he died, he died unto sin once. That fleeting moment produced the work. But he says on the other side, in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. The apostle means that Christ is now restored to the position where he was before he came into this world. The prayer that he offered, his great high priestly prayer, that is recorded in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, and especially verse 5 has been answered. What was his petition? And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. From eternity he had shared this glory with the Father. But in order to redeem us, he had put on one side some of, yeah, he had put on one side some of the signs and the insignia of that eternal glory. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. He came in the likeness of man, in the form and likeness of sinful flesh, and his glory was veiled and was hidden. But now he realizes he's about to die and to finish the work. So he offers up the petition. He says, I've completed, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And because he had done so, he goes on to say, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. That prayer has been answered. He has returned fully to his eternal glory. He has re-entered into the realm and the sphere out of which he had come. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. I thought that was a good description of what that means. But there's a, a question here I would like some of you to, to uh, answer. How do we live to God? Oh, you're all so shy. I'm going to have to bore you with reading again. How do we live to God? All right. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. What precisely is he saying? This is his exhortation. We are to reckon as true about ourselves, not something that we want to be true, but something that is actually true of us. Reckon you yourselves, he says, because of your union with Christ, to be dead indeed unto sin. Realize, he says, conclude that you are already dead unto sin because Christ is dead unto sin. The apostle has taken all this trouble to tell, tell us in detail what is true of the Lord himself because he's going to tell us what is true of him is true of us. I am to reckon, therefore, not something that I want to be true, but something that is true. 
It is not my reckoning that does this for me. No, this has already been done for me by another. I am to reckon something that is already a fact. And the fact is that because I am united to Christ, and from the moment I became united to him, I am already dead to sin, to the law, to death itself. So I am to reckon on something that has already happened, and that something that has already happened is not something that I do. It is not my reckoning that brings it into being. This, my death to sin and being alive unto God, is something that has been accomplished for me by the Lord Jesus Christ, who died unto sin once. I have come into this position because of the work of the Holy Spirit, who baptizes me into Christ. And as he baptizes me into Christ, I am in Christ. And I reap all those consequences of what happened to him. So this verse is not telling me to accomplish something. It just tells me to realize what has been done for me once and forever by the Lord Jesus Christ. He died unto sin once. Therefore, I with him died unto sin once and forever. That is what I have to keep holding on to before myself. So you see that this is not experimental. It does not tell me anything about my experience. What does it tell me? It tells me about my position, my standing, my whole status. It tells me about the realm in which I now am as a Christian. Christ was once in the realm of sin and death, and he is no longer there. I was once in the realm of sin and death. Everybody who is not a Christian is in the realm of sin and death and is under the dominion of sin and of Satan and of death, belonging to darkness, belonging to the kingdom of Satan. What the apostle tells me here is that as Christ once entered into that realm for a while, but no longer does so. In exactly the same way, I am no longer belonging to it either. I have been taken out of it with him because I am in him. And I thought, this is really, it's so good to read. Therefore, I am to realize, to believe, to reckon, to hold it constantly before me, that as he died unto sin once and forever and for all, I have done so. I am no longer in the realm of sin and death. I belong to this other realm, alive unto God. This is not my experience, but my standing, my position, my status. It is the realm in which I now live. So I just thought that's just a good way to talk about how do we live unto God. This is what we remember each and every day. So that when we do sin and we fall, we don't go, oh, how, how can I be a Christian? We need to know that we're living in a realm, the old realm still of Adam and the pull, the pull is there. But we see with God's word and with his spirit within us, there's that drawing toward Christ, toward what we know we should be. So Paul says, consider, reckon, consider yourself in Jesus Christ as dead to sin and alive to God. <coughs> consider yourself in the light of what has already happened to you, your conversion, your freedom from paying for your sin. Now think of yourself as being alive to God. 12 to 14, those verses. Therefore, again, what is that therefore? He's just explained what happened to us when we were united with Christ. We're dead to sin's penalty. We're free from sin's grasp. And one day we're going to be raised to be free from the power and presence of sin in the same way that Jesus was raised. Now here's where the circles come in. We've been moved from one realm to another. So Paul instructs us to live our lives in service to our new master. And he describes a conscious effort on our part, a battle, so to speak. It must be waged while we wait for our new bodies. Stop living as though you were still in Adam, he's saying. 
When we became a believer, we were brought into that new realm with Christ as our ever-present Lord. But we're still living in this present world, and we're not free from that realm of Adam, the realm of sin and death. It has not been brought to a close. We see it every day, the fact of sin and death, and it's descriptive of Adam's realm. And as we live in this realm, we are afflicted with sin and death. Now, you feel that tension, I'm sure, as I do. There are times when I'm discouraged and I, I'm disappointed in my behavior, but then I think, no, Christ died for me, and he, he made a way for me. And if I do sin and I confess it, he's faithful and just to forgive me. Those things are written for us. We were under God's wrath, and we had no hope of eventual release. But something happened, and we were transformed to a new realm. And we shouldn't let that master from the realm we've been released from dictate our lifestyle. When we are tempted, we can say to Satan, get behind me. I used to be that way, but now I believe in Jesus. Paul's not saying we're going to be entirely free from sin, but that in Christ we're free to fight it. There's a tension in our current position, position, and we know that we have a new standing in Christ. We've been free from the penalty of sin. Christ has paid that price, but we're still in this world, and we feel the pull of the old nature. And it's a fact, or else Paul would not have said what he says in verses 12 and 13. Look at the language. He's saying, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its lust. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as unrighteousness. These are believers he's writing to. And of course, to apply it to us today, it's the same admonishment. We need to see ourselves as we actually are. We've died to the old realm of sin, and sometimes I, I don't see myself in that way. It seems like I'm going backward, and there's things I do and things I say, and I have to come to the Lord and go, please help me. And I think that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He convicts us, doesn't he? He convicts us, and he should. Until the resurrection is complete, we're going to be caught in this tension of living in the overlap of those two areas or realms. It's God's will that we battle against sin. It's a constant challenge. Uh, it's, it's to avoid putting ourselves at the disposal of sin. Our speech, it's so easy to puff ourselves up and to deceive others when instead we should be building up others. Other examples. Uh, our time. Where do we spend a lot of time? So many aspects of our life can be used to serve the Lord. We often see how tiring it is to resist sin and live, and it is a battle, but the battle isn't ours alone. I love that verse. Uh, I, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know, often we think about that when we're tired or we've just come to the end of ourselves. <coughs> But you know, it's not just about being exhausted and spending time with the Lord and being refreshed. It's going to him confessing the battle is strong against us and at times we feel so weak and that's when he promises to renew and refresh us. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones this week, or part of the book, and he says, if you're a Christian, what is true of you is that all the dynamic of the reign of grace is upon you and is working in you and will bring you to perfection. So our final verses this week are 13 and 14. Paul uses these words. They're action words. He, he says, Colossians 3, 1 to 11, uh, you know, we're, in, we're being encouraged to do certain things. 
Uh, we're to seek, we're to set our mind on things, we're to put to death, to put off. All those are action words. They're not, they're not something that we just say, oh, okay, well, maybe if I want. No, they're, they're commands to us. As you read the epistles, it's so encouraging because it's so consistent. He's not just talking to Romans, all the different churches that he wrote to. He was admonishing them. It's a battle we're in. And this problem of rebellion originates in our minds a lot of times. In the very first chapter, verse 21, it said that because of what they thought, God became futile in their speculation, and God gave them over. Men were doing their own reasoning. They didn't honor or thank God. Well, the solution to the problem is a changed mind and heart, isn't it? And, of course, that can only happen when the Holy Spirit uh, convicts us of the things that we need to do and be. This is not to say we're going to be completely free from sin, but now we know something different about ourselves in the light of the gospel that has come to us. There was an old hymn years ago we sang, really old-fashioned verse, but I, I did love it, and it was conquering still and still to conquer, right of the king in his reign, I think it is. And so the verse that I like, the chorus, I should say, it said, not to the strong is the battle, not to the swift is the race, Yet to the true and faithful, victory is promised through grace. So we can rejoice, just like the Romans. We have a good reason, just as they did. This holy God has taken the initiative to save us from his own wrath. And because of the cross, we've been elevated from being justly condemned rebels that we were to adoption as his own dear sons and daughters. This is what happened when the Spirit of God reached us. And I look around today and I... I've heard different testimonies of how God reached you. And it's a wonderful thing to think on these things, that we've been justified, that we really realize what it is that's been done for us. Well, I'm just going to close in prayer. And we've got about five minutes if you want to chat. And the Lord bless us as we continue this flight in Rome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the things that we've been reading about ourselves. And Lord, often the battle is so strong within us to go our own way. But we thank you, Lord, that in your word you promise nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And it's these promises that hold us strong. Bless each and every one in this room and the families and the homes that are represented. Lord, give us grace each week to walk the way your word instructs us. Help us to read that word. Apply it to our hearts and our lives. Help us to please you. Help us to do all that we do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.